Hope in the midst of a shaken world. Is there anybody here today who wouldn't say that things are crazy in the world in which we live? You know, as I was concluding my message last Sunday, I shared that verses 28 and 29 really provide a transition. And uh, so we're going to begin again today with those verses. I shared how John developed his tests. Tests for determining true righteousness. And you know, he began with the importance of obedience. What we identified as the moral test. And then he continued by sharing about the importance of brotherly love. You can't say you know God if you don't love your brother. What we called the, the social test. And then that round concluded... And he concluded by demonstrating the importance of what we believe. The doctrinal test. Then as I was closing my message last Sunday, I showed how John already begins to return to go through that cycle again. And today, we are going to be looking at the first of that cycle again. The moral test. The test of obedience. Uh, because as he's closing, notice he says in verse 27, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true, and it is no lie, just as he taught you, abide in him. Abide in him. He's talking about the importance, which we'll get to in verses 28 and 29, of practicing righteousness. Practicing righteousness. Why? Because the proof of being a Christian is not merely thinking correctly. Oh, that's important. But it's having the right beliefs demonstrating those right beliefs by also having the right conduct. I mean, wouldn't it really seem rather bizarre? Justin and I watched a movie this week, and I highly recommend it. A really good movie. Uh, the movie was simply titled, uh, yeah, Greater. Greater. I wanted to say Grateful. But I knew that wasn't right. It was called Greater. And it's a true story. It's a story about a young man who coming out of high school, he just wanted to play for the University of Arkansas. And he did really well in high school and he had a full ride scholarship to Arkansas Tech. But he said no. He wanted to play for Arkansas. Now, if you don't realize the difference, Arkansas is one of the SEC schools. 
Only the cream of the crop around the nation in high school go to the SEC schools. But he went as a walk-on. Now let me tell you the story real quickly. There is now a trophy given out every year for the walk-on who achieves the most in his career. Named after him. Because he walked on. And he was made fun of. Why? Because his athletic behavior, his agility, his speed, his athletic behavior wasn't consistent with the proclamation that he was a SEC football player. Our behavior has to be consistent with what we profess. What we say we believe. Isn't that how Jesus closed the Sermon on the Mount? With an analogy? That the wise man is in fact the person who not only hears the words, but is a doer of the words. Now if you haven't already, go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, verses 27 and following. John concludes that previous section by reminding the church that they had been taught that they have an anointing that abides in them, the Holy Spirit that they receive when they submit in obedience to baptism. And therefore he says to them, they need to abide in Him. Abide in Him. It's just a matter of fact statement. It's in the Greek language in what's called the indicative. Present tense, just stated statement of fact. This is something you need to do. You need to abide in Him. And what that means is, is we need to give our life to Jesus Christ in such a way that it looks like we are united. That we're one. But then, He does a little switch. He goes from the indicative to an imperative. And now, little children, abide in Him. And it's a command in the Greek. It's it's not just a statement of who they are anymore. In fact, John uses abide 23 times in his short letter. Ten times, abide in Him, and three times that He'll abide in you. It's a very important concept for John's Gospel. And I, I hope you'll be able to see as we continue on that He's going to start back through the three, three tests, and this time, this time in unfolding the moral test, He's going to associate it very clearly with the Lord's manifestations. When He appears. When He comes. And His stated purpose is abiding Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. Now, this thought of the manifestations, the appearances, the comings of Jesus, it's it's very important for John. Because either as a noun or an adjective or as a verb, as early as 1 John chapter uh, 1 verse 2, he says right from the the start of the letter, 
that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we've seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Two times in just one sentence. Made manifest. Made known. Made clear. Put out there for us to see. Now, four times in our text for today, he's going to talk about the appearances of Jesus. His being made manifest. Two of them are going to refer to His first coming. Born as a baby. Coming as flesh. I, I, I had a question asked of me just the other day. Right here in town. Aren't God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit one person? And I said, yes. Yes, that's what's called the Trinity. And she said, I knew that was the case. And Kay was with me and Kay said, oh, you were listening back when you came to, to, to jam. <laughs> yes. God in the flesh manifest. And God in the flesh manifest Jesus is going to come again. And two of the times that John speaks about being made appearing is, is in reference to the future coming. You see, the fact of His first appearing, coming as the baby in the manger, and the hope of His second should be both strong incentives for us to be keeping the commandments. And the question that we're going to ask today is the question, what are you practicing? What are you practicing? I mean... As we're reading the various sections of the text today, and I'm going to do it like I did last Sunday. I'm going to make a point and read a couple verses and, and go through our text that way. But as we're reading the various sections of the text, make it a point to notice not only how often, but when John speaks of what we may or may not be practicing. My topic for today is the idea of being children of God. Isn't it great to know that today, on Valentine's Day, the Creator of the universe, our Heavenly Father, He loves us so much and loves us so dearly that I wouldn't be surprised if He didn't have uh, another Valentine other than this one. I mean, this is a Valentine to me that says, from God, I love you. You're my Valentine. But God loves us. And He enables us to be called His children, the children of God. And uh, you know what? <laughs> One of the things uh, that most of us acknowledge, we know that it's true, even though we might not like it at times, is that a child, our child for that matter, often exhibits the characteristics, the character rate, character traits that you and I have. I don't know about you, but I have found myself often, every once in a while I'll laugh and I'll think, that sounded like my dad. 
<laughs> or I'll say something. And even more frightening, I'll hear my one of my children say something. In fact, one of our children just recently used that as an excuse. Hey, I got it from Dad. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how parents and children are so much alike in so many ways? Why? Because we are partaking of much of the same nature. Both genetically and environmentally. Even a child who is not biologically yours, if you have that child from the time that they're a baby, they'll be saying things and doing things and acting like the parent. They take on a lot of that nature. And so let's look at this first question. The first question in terms of what we're practicing is the, is the very question, what do you know? What do you know about God? What do you know regarding God? Here's how John begins. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him at, in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous. You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. If you know that He is righteous. Well, let me just start there this morning. Do you know that God is righteous? I mean... That's what, that's what John says. And the He who is righteous is God. Can we know that with certainty? I think we can. As a part of our all-church reading plan, if you're doing that with us, this week we read Leviticus chapter 26. There we read these words. I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. What's he saying in that passage? I'm going to do what's right. Even though Israel isn't going to do what's right, even though they're going to continue to rebel, I am going to remember the covenant that I made and I am going to do what's right. And some time ago as we studied Romans, we saw how Paul's thematic statement uh, for the letter to the Christians at Rome is found there in, in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 where it talks about God's faithfulness to the covenant. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now John's point 
is that if the readers know their Old Testament history, and if they know what Paul refers to as the Gospel, then we should know that God is righteous. And when we remember that God is righteous, then we can be sure that everyone who does right is born of Him. That's why I said Wednesday night what I did, Mark. I've often been asked the question about why evil? Why did good things happen? Why did bad things happen to good people? And I debated one time with somebody who denied the existence of God on that grounds. There can't be a good God. He was going back to uh, actually uh, what Rabbi Roman had developed in a book saying there's only two choices. Either God is all-powerful and not all-loving or all-loving but not all-powerful. Well, later, even the rabbi changed his perspective. But my point is, evil doesn't bother me. I don't like it. But the existence of it doesn't challenge me mentally because I know that in order for me in freedom to choose a good God, I have to have a viable alternative. I've shared that with you before. That if I have a bowl of fruit up here and it's all oranges, and I say, oh, wouldn't you like a piece of fruit? If you don't like oranges, and that's all i got is oranges, you're out of luck. You don't really have a choice, do you? But if I have a bowl of fruit that that includes apples and pears and peaches and plums and oranges, and I say, would you like a piece of fruit? You have a choice. You can choose something other than the orange. And for me to have a choice to choose a good God, there has to be a viable alternative for me to choose. Or else I'm not choosing in freedom. That's the only thing I have to choose. But here's my problem. How do you explain good if there's not a God? How do you explain a true case, train off the tracks, into the the river waters uh, down in Arkansas? Many people died. How do you explain the fact that two of the parents lifted their child up so that the child could be saved when the child was totally dependent? One of those children that many say should have been aborted as a baby. But they did what they could to save that child. Altruism. It has no reason if there's not a good God. How do we know that that God is righteous? How do we know that it's talking about God? Because the text doesn't say God. The text simply says that if you know that He is righteous. Well, let's, let's use the text to help us understand the text. Do you know that John uses ten times in 1 John, he uses the verb genao to give birth to. Ten times. Guess what? In nine of the ten times, 
it distinctly refers to God as the one who is giving birth to something. Only 2.29, uh, our verse that we read, does it just have He who is righteous? Now, I would say that if ten times he uses that phrase, nine times he says God is righteous, the, the, te- the tenth time he says He who is righteous, I think it's fairly evident that it's God he's talking about. And what he says is that that ambiguous expression that He who is righteous uh, is born in Him. That's where the Ganao comes in. Born in Him. In God. Nine other times. That's how we can know with certainty that the words, if you know He is righteous, refer to God. And additionally, John uses two different words for knowing. He says, if you know as a fact, from the word idete, that God is righteous, John says, then you will perceive as a logical consequence. You can also know, you can be sure, genoskete, that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. Now here's the point. The child exhibits the parent's character because he shares the parent's nature. A person's righteousness, your righteousness, my righteousness, is the evidence of our new birth. Not the cause not the condition of. We can't do enough to earn our salvation. We can't be obedient enough to the commands. But that doesn't mean that our works, that somehow our obedience is not important because grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. And that brings me to the second question that each of us need to be asking ourselves. Are we practicing righteousness, which he says in 229, 3.7, and 3.10, or are we practicing sinning, which he says in chapter 3, verse 4, verse 8, and verse 9. So let's read on. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. That's one of the two appearances that don't refer to Jesus. What we're going to be, it hasn't appeared yet. But we know that when He appears, he shall, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. Read that sentence carefully. Everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. Don't tell me, don't try to tell me that the Bible doesn't say that you and I as Christians have things that we need to be doing. We need to be purifying ourselves. We need to get be getting rid of 
some of those things. And, and some of it, it might be really, 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 really hard to get rid of. My, my tailor of years past, the French tailor Jacques Penet, mm -hmm. some people called him by his initials, JC. He became a Christian. And years after his conversion, one day he was speaking. And with tears running down his face, he lamented the fact that he still had a struggle with his language. And he didn't try to justify it. Saying, well, you know, I'm just human. He said, I work at it. And I will continue to work at it until the day that I die. He purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It's one of the definitions in the Bible of sin. Sin is, in other places, missing the mark. Sin is lawlessness. Intentionally going against the law. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins. And in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him... Does it say no one who abides in Him sins? No. It says no one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning. Because he's been born of God. By this is, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. What are you practicing? You see... Once again, he develops what we have called the moral test. He shows the indispensable necessity of living a holy life. Whoever does not practice... Oh, I hit the wrong one, didn't I? Whoever does not practice righteousness <coughs> is not of God. And notice his reference is not from the expect expectation of the Lord's second coming when we will see Him and be like Him, but from the purpose of His first coming, which was to remove sins and to destroy the works of the devil. And, and, it's, and it's an intentional, intentional comparison on John's behalf. He's doing it from the negative perspective of sinning. By means of contrast, he develops the importance of obedience, practicing righteousness, obedient living. For instance, 
the introductory phrase. Verse 4, everyone who sins. Verse 8, he who does what is sinful. The theme, verse 4, the nature of sin is lawlessness. Verse 8, the origin of sin is the devil. See, don't tell me this is an accident. The purpose of Christ appearing. Verse 5, He appeared so that He might take away our sins. Verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. And the conclusion, verse 6, no one who lives in Him keeps on sinning. Verse 9, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. Two parallel paragraphs. Wanting to make sure that to continue in sin, if we understand that to practice sinning is in fact in complete contradiction to the whole purpose of Christ coming in the flesh to dwell with us. In fact, so important that it's mentioned twice. And that first part ended with a solemn warning. Dear children, my beloved children, Don't let anyone deceive you. Don't let them lead you astray. But you need to be on guard. And the way to do it is by practicing righteousness. Now what's that mean? Well, let's go to the Sermon on the Mount. Might as well get it from the mouth of Jesus, huh? He says, starting in chapter 6, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Beware of practicing your righteousness. Oh, wait a minute. So we are supposed to practice righteousness. We're just not supposed to do it to be seen by people. And what is it that he's talking about here in terms of three different things that are a part of our practicing our righteousness? Verse 2, thus when you give. You know the passage. Don't let your left hand, right hand know what your left hand's doing. Do it in secret. Verse 5, when you pray. Verse 7, when you pray. Verse 16, when you fast. And then he comes back to giving again. Verse 18. What are three of many ways that you and I can work at practicing righteousness? By making sure that our giving is what God is expecting for us to give. That we are praying in the way that God wants us to pray. And there are times that we're fasting. So, I, well, I can't fast, preacher. I'm a diabetic. Well, so am I. And there are times that I fast. I don't do it in a way that it's going to cause me to have problems with my sugar. But 
I do it in a way that says, I'm going to do away with something and use that time to think about this, to focus on this for God's kingdom. There are many times, I don't tell my wife the reason why, that's letting people know. There are many times that I'll say to my wife, you know, I'm just, I'm not going to have lunch today. And I'll have breakfast with her and then I'll have supper with her. And at lunchtime, I'll get three little peanut butter crackers out to make sure that my system has the protein it needs as a diabetic. But I won't stop. I won't spend money. I won't take time to have lunch. I'll use that time to focus on something that's bothering me, which recently, most frequently, has been my little buddy Paul over in Myanmar, Burma, with all of the revolt going on, the military revolt, we finally were able to get word through and back from him again. And he told us that he is very secure, not to worry. You see, from John's perspective, as a Christian, doing is the test of being. The philosopher was wrong. I think, therefore, I am. I mean, there's a whole lot more to me than thinking. But doing is the test of what we are being. I, I like that little illustration about, about tongues and shoes. For us old-fashioned people who still wear shoes that tie that have tongues, I have two tongues in my shoes, but only one tongue in my mouth. And no matter what the tongue in my mouth says, the tongue in my tongues in my shoes outvote it. Where I'm going, what I'm doing, speak far louder than anything I can say with my mouth. So listen, if the characteristic work of the devil is to sin, the, character, the characteristic work of the Son of God is to save, and that's the work that you and I are to be a part of. And so John first says that the Christian doesn't continue to sin, and then he says they can't continue, they can't go on sinning. Now what in the world do you mean by that? I mean, Thompson, come on. I sin every day. So do I. I love this story. It's a story of a parent who was looking out the back window of their house. And they said to their two boys before they went outside, don't go back there and play in the mud. I can see that mud hole from here. Don't go back there and play in the mud. Now let me ask you, as a parent, you look out and see them playing in the mud, what are you going to do? You're going to discipline in some way. But let me ask you that question just a little bit differently. If one of them has a bat and a ball and throws the ball up and hits the ball with the bat and the other one is running watching the ball and you don't have very good control of where a ball goes when you're hitting it with a bat. And one of them is running to catch that ball and he slips and slides into that mud. 
Is it going to be a different situation? I hope so. I hope so. I hope there is a difference between intentional behavior and accidental behavior. And what John is saying to us is that if we are Christians, we should not be going out here intentionally sinning. I'm almost finished. I want to go back to Leviticus. I am so glad when our daily reading plan makes me read Leviticus. Because just out of pure love, Leviticus is not one of the books that I go to to read. But... uh, Again, I find it interesting that when you start reading about some of these feasts that are there, they're all for the person who sins unintentionally. There are very few provisions in Leviticus for somebody who intentionally sins. If his sin is unintentional, if his sin is unintentional, that is the difference that John is saying between practicing sin, sinning as a practice, or practicing righteousness. You see, it's not that we're incapable of sinning. John's already said that we cannot be blind to sin and we can't deny its existence, nor can we be indifferent to sin and deny its gravity. It's seriousness. To deny sin is to be a liar. But to live in such a way that your life is a picture of sin. That you can be described as one practicing sin. Much in the same way as a doctor is said to be practicing medicine. To intentionally do that which we know to be wrong. To intentionally commit sin is, John says, to be of the devil. So the final question that we need to answer is the the simple question, whose child are you? I mean, I would simply go back and read that very last verse again because it's actually another one of those transitional sentences that John has. It's going to take us into our message for next Sunday. Verse 10 By this it is evident that we are children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Where is he going with the emphasis at the end? Back to love. The next test. The social test. See, Truth and falsehood, good and evil, right and wrong, God and the devil, they're irreconcilable opposites. 
I said last week, and I stand by it. I went back and read some more things to make sure that I wasn't out of line. In the spiritual sense, God is not the Father of all people. And not all people are His children. He's the Creator of all. But John here is only echoing what Jesus once said to some of the unbelieving Jews. You belong to your father, the devil. And Jesus also said, by their fruit, you will recognize them. By their fruit. See, if Christ appeared first both to take away our sins and to destroy the devil's work, and if when He appears a second time, we shall see Him, and in consequence we'll be like Him, how can we possibly want to continue practicing sin and not be practicing righteousness? Let's pray. Father God, we come before You today and the reality is we know we're sinners. We know we make mistakes. And yet help us, Father, not to get lazy. Not to sit back on our haunches and say, well, you know, I I gave my life to Christ and therefore everything's okay. We're going to make mistakes, Father, but help us not to rebelliously, intentionally disobey what we see to be His desires from His Word. Use us to that end. Help us to speak the truth. And Father, please forgive us when we have spoken the truth, but we have not done it in a loving way. Because you have said we are to speak the truth in love. We pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.